Amen. Well, we have the pleasure of having Jeremy do a bit of a send out message from John chapter 20 today. So if you want to open up your Bibles to John chapter 20, you'll notice that the pulpit was notched down about uh, six inches. And uh, just kidding. It's a joke I like to make every now and then. John chapter 20. So if you don't have a Bible in your hands, if you want to raise your hand, we'll have someone, Jason will get one into your hands. It's important as we, uh, as we go through the word that you have um, the word of the Lord in front of you. I um, just want to make sure that you're seeing that these are the words of the Lord and they're not um, the words of, of men. So with that, um, we'll jump right into John chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 1 through 23. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloths which had been on Jesus's head not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead then the disciples went back to their homes but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet they said to her woman why are you weeping she said to them they have taken away my lord and I do not know where they have laid him having said this she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. 
you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So I'd invite you this morning as we look and consider this passage, I'd invite you to consider two specific questions. What are the effects of the resurrection of Jesus from death unto life? What are the effects? And two, what impact has Christ's resurrection from death unto life had upon you today? You see, for many in the church, the resurrection is a piece of the gospel that we share. We all know about the resurrection as, as believers, as followers of Jesus. We know about the resurrection. We've been taught about the resurrection. And we know that a resurrection is, a, is an essential piece to the gospel. It's a defining event in Christ's ministry that proves he was who he said he was, the Son of God. The resurrection is, is what sets Christianity apart from all other, all other religions in the world. The Bible says that the resurrection is proof that Christ has finally and fully paved the way for sinners to have eternal life. And all of this is true, and it's amazing, and it's profound. And if that's all we ever had to know about the resurrection, those truths would be profound enough to teach about and talk about it. But that's not all the Bible has to say about the resurrection. And I pray today that by and through the Holy Spirit of God, he would allow us to see the effects and therefore the impact of the resurrection of death unto life of Christ. Let's, let's pray before we jump into this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather, to gather in, in your son's name, to be here, to hear, to read your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see. I pray that by and through your Holy Spirit, we would um, be impacted by your words, that we would not leave here the same as when we walked in, that we would leave here different, full of life in you, full of life because of your Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So meet us here this morning, we pray. It's in your Son, Jesus' name. So we see right here, right off the bat in verses 1 through 10, um, that it's the morning um, after the Sabbath. So Mary and some women are coming to the tomb to finish properly burying um, and preparing the body um, for Jesus' permanent burial, or what they thought was his permanent burial. It's no surprise then that when Mary gets there and they see the stone rolled away, that she's super surprised, that she's just doesn't even know what to do. She just immediately runs back to get Peter and to John and tell him that they have taken the body. She's assuming somebody came in and stole the body. And even Peter and John's response to hearing that, they pick up and they just take off running towards the tomb. Their response is such that they were themselves not anticipating the resurrection of Christ. Though I don't think I think the word would infer that they were believing that somebody had stole the body. I mean, John says in verse 8 that he looked and he believed, but what did he believe? They knew that the body was gone, 
They knew that the linen cloths were there, but the face cloth was still there, all folded and in, and in one piece. If somebody was to steal the body, why leave that like that? You know, in Matthew's account, you have the issue of the Roman guards that are standing out um, next door. You know, if, if someone was going to come in and steal the body, why, you know, take the time to, to unwrap it? So it says that they believed, but they didn't, it doesn't say specifically what they were believing was true about the empty tomb. We don't know all that they believed, but we are faced with the facts that the body was gone. And they left wondering, and they left. They went back home. Verse 9 tells us um, later that it, it wasn't aligning in their brains 100% that Christ was to rise from the dead. In Luke chapter 24, it actually says Christ came and, and revealed to them, took the scales off of their eyes, and allowed them to then piece together the scriptures and all that he had been teaching them about why he was going to rise. But they weren't putting it together at that moment, and they left. And this is where we pick it up in, in verse 11. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. So the disciples leave, but Mary stays. And we know that the disciples left in fear. I mean, it says they went back and locked themselves back up. We'll see that down in verse 19. They went back and locked themselves back up. But Mary, she stayed. Now, what do we know about Mary Magdalene at this point? All we really know of her from the Gospels is that she was a woman whom Christ had an encounter with, and in that encounter, he had casted out seven demons from within her. And that's really all we know about Mary from the Gospels. There's, there's speculation about some other um, roles that she might have played, but, but we don't really know for sure. We know that much is true of her. But we also know that from that day on, she was part of Christ's ministry. She followed him where they went she went she helped she served she walked with the site she probably served in the appropriate um, roles for women of that day she helped she went with them her life was changed in that moment forever she knew it and she followed christ she was even present at his crucifixion she watched him die we see that in the gospel she was there this woman's life was greatly impacted and here she is standing stooping hurting grieving she is lost she's probably wondering what her life was going to entail now where would she go what would she do she was standing there weeping outside the tomb and look what happens look what happens next Verses 12 and 13, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to him, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. John is depicting a picture of a woman who is continuing to look into the empty tomb. She's beside herself. The other gospel accounts actually talk about a, re a response that the women there have in seeing the angels. But John doesn't talk about that. He's wanting us to focus in on the emotion of what Mary's feeling in this, in this moment. And then look what happens. It says that she turned around. Why did she turn? Did she hear something behind her? Did she hear someone walk up behind her? 
I don't, we don't know, but picture this in your mind then. She's standing, stooping, looking into the tomb, and then she turns. Verses 14 and 15. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know what it she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, "Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking?" Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, "Sir, if you have carried away, him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away." She didn't recognize him. She didn't know that it was him. She had just spent Months, maybe years, following him, worshiping at his feet, helping partake in the ministry. And she didn't know that it was Christ, even when he spoke to her. She didn't know him. She didn't know the Savior, her Savior. She didn't even, in re- she didn't even recognize him so much to the point that she turned back around. Until what? She didn't know it was him until what? Look at what it says. It says right there in red letter. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni. Christ comes up behind her and she turns back around and he says, Mary. Mary. And in an instant she knew it was him. As if a switch had been turned on inside of her. As if all of a sudden a light had dawned within her. Her Savior had called her by name and she recognized the voice of the Savior. He was alive and he was calling her by name. Mary, he called. This brings to life the scripture earlier in John where it says the shepherd knows his sheep and he calls them by name and the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. Mary, and she turns. He called her by name and she turned. And what does she do next? What does she do? Look what John says she does. She immediately, she clings to him. She throws herself at him, probably at his feet, overwhelmed in grief, 30 seconds of, And now she has the risen Savior standing in front of her, calling her by name, and she turns and she clings to him. Can you place yourself watching this from a distance, just watching this? Can you place yourself there in the gravity of this moment? How can we read this account of the Savior calling her by name and not be moved? She's standing there searching for the one thing or the one person whom she needs. And she knows that she needs him and he's no longer there. His body is gone. And at the call of her name, she knows it's him and she turns and clings. Called by the resurrected Savior. Have you experienced this? Do you remember the details? Do you remember the time frame? Do you remember what life was like before the God of the universe called you by name, Christian? Are you still experiencing the joy of seeing and knowing Christ face to face in that time or in that moment maybe? 
Are you still experiencing that time when a light was dawned within you and you came to see Christ and you knew your need for a Savior and you recognized the chasm and the sin that was keeping you in separation from the Father and in walks Christ? Do you remember that moment? Have you seen the risen Christ? Have you heard him call you by name? Have you turned? Have you repented of your sins and turned to Christ? Maybe you have. Maybe you are here today and you know you have. And you are experiencing the joy of your salvation and life in Christ. But do you know others who don't know do you know anybody who hasn't heard of life in Christ? Have you told them? Have you told them about your overabundance of joy and life and the Savior that you know has brought your life? Have you told anybody about him? Isaiah 12, verses 3 and 6 describes it like this. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy. O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So we see Mary, she's turned and she's clinging to Christ. And imagine, imagine for a moment all the things that Christ could have said to her in that moment. Imagine that. Imagine all the things that she maybe wanted Christ to say to her in that moment. But what does he say? What does he tell Mary in that moment as she's clinging to the resurrected Savior? What does he say? Verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Don't cling to me, he says, but rather go and tell. Go and tell. It's incredible. It's incredible in this moment of all the things Christ could have said. He says, don't cling to me. Go and tell. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. What is he meaning when he says he's not yet ascended? Why is, he need, why is he telling her, don't cling to me? We're told to cling to Christ for life. We're told to follow, to cling. There are days where all we have is to cling to him. That's a different kind of clinging than what Christ is talking about in this, in this moment. He's saying, I haven't yet ascended to the Father. Don't cling to me here and now. This moment, this clinging to me here and now is not yet the plan. There will be a time when you will cling. There will be a time when you and me together will be together in eternity. There will be a time for that. Me and you in the physical. I will be with you. You will be with me. But now, now is not that time. There will be a time for consummation. But today is not that day. And why is today not that day? Look, what does it say? 
There is work to be done. You have to go and tell. The second half of 17. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now is not the time to cling. You have to go and tell. My brothers, my father, your father, my God and your God. Do you know who the first person in biblical history was to refer to God as his father? Christ. In all of the Old Testament, God is not referred to by anyone as my father, as in their personal father. This, Christ was the first person on the, t- on the scene to ever make that statement. And it's one of the main statements that the Pharisees hated about Christ making that statement. That was one of the main reasons they were always coming after him. It was considered blasphemy to talk about God as your personal father. So this was huge. This was huge in this moment then that the resurrected Christ says to Mary, my brothers, your father, your God. Christ's resurrection ushered in a whole new level of relationship between us and God. Had he stayed in the grave, we would never have the relationship that we have with the Father. This was all by the plan and design of God. The resurrection ushered that in. It bridged the gap. It bridged the chasm that exists between us and God because of the first sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden. Because of that sin, we are now all born fallen sinners, and there is a gap. There is a chasm. We have no ability to come or commune or be in relationship with the Father. Because he loved the world, he sent his son who died. To bridge that gap, to fill that chasm, paving a way for us to come back into communion with the Father. He now fills that gap for those who would repent and believe. This is what Romans 8.15 is speaking of when it says, We now cry out to God as Abba, Father. Abba is translated as Daddy. We are made children of God through Christ. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. And what What does it say? What does the passage say? Fellow heirs with Christ. The resurrection changed, it, changed everything. This is what Christ is telling Mary in this moment. Go and tell my brothers, my father and your father, my God and your God. Is this not good news? Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. But when the fullness of time had come, this was that moment. The fullness of time had come. Come and Christ was telling this to Mary. And 
incredible. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So Christ comes up behind her, he calls her by name, she turns, she clings, he says, don't cling to me, go and tell. Go and tell. And what does she do? What does she do? Verse 18 says what she does. She obeyed. She went. She announced to the disciples that Jesus was alive. And if you read the narrative, the way that John is orchestrating and putting this together, it doesn't seem like she went and obeyed out of compulsion. Is that what you see in her? I don't think that's what we see in the scriptures. Remember, she was there with Peter and John this morning. When they come, they saw the empty tomb. They left wondering in fear. They were wanting to see the Lord. They were looking for him. And they left. And there he is alive to her. So he says, go and tell my brothers. And she goes. And it was to her joy. We can only imagine it was to her joy to be able to go back and announce to her brothers, he's alive. He's alive. Would you not be happy in this moment to go and tell? Maybe a better question is, were you happy in this moment when Christ called you by name to go and tell? Are you still just as happy each morning when you wake up that you are counted That you are counted because of Christ as a son or daughter of the Father. Do we respond like that every morning? Do we respond like John says in 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. Are you seeing him? Are we seeing this? Is this true of us? Are we still responding in our going and our telling? Or has the dust settled? Has the candle wick burned low? Has our astonishment of our life in Christ lost its zeal? Do you remember that you are saved by him? Are you still telling everyone? Are you telling anyone? Or are you keeping it to yourself? Are you clinging to Christ and keeping this knowledge of the resurrected Savior to yourself? Or are we going and telling about this life we have and that they need? First part of verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. It's interesting here that the doors were locked and that the disciples were sitting there still in fear. Mary had already come and announced to them that he was alive. And yet they remained in fear, locked away in their closet together, just huddling. Why were they not out looking for him? Did they not believe what that she had told them? 
I think there's three compelling things about this, this passage. One, that they're still sitting in fear. Two, behind a locked door that tells us exactly what kind of fear they are sitting in. And three, that Christ is now there standing among them. I think when we read this passage, we like to clue Now, Christ just standing there among them. How did he do that? Did he walk through the door? Did he unlock it? Did he disappear and then reappear? Did he project himself like Luke Skywalker from an island far, far away? How did he get in the door? How was he standing there? We like to think about those things, and those are fun, and those are good and right, and, and they're, they're fun things to think about. But I think when we focus there, we miss the point of what John is telling us in this passage. The disciples are huddled in fear. Christ is alive. They're not out looking for them. He comes to them. He seeks them out. They knew that he was alive, or they, they were told that, and they're staying in fear, in unbelief. Even in knowing of his resurrection, he doesn't, we don't seek him out. He comes to us. He seeks us out. The shepherd always goes after his sheep. This is a good picture for us as believers to be reminded that when we are not faithful, he always is he comes after us. The second half of verse 19, peace be with you. These are the first words that Christ speaks to his disciples. The first words according to John's account that Christ speaks to them. Peace be with you. What kind of peace is Christ speaking about in this moment? What kind of peace is he talking about? Is he talking about the kind of peace like, whoa, bros, don't freak out. Yeah, I just walked through that door. Is that what he's saying? Like, peace. Don't mess your tunic. He's not talking about that kind of peace in this, in this passage. Nor is he talking about the kind of peace that our politicians like to talk about when we're talking about world peace. He's not talking about that kind of peace. He's not talking about the kind of peace that we look like hey man peace bro peace love happiness everyone commune together and happy no that's not the kind of peace christ is talking about he's not even talking about the kind of peace that we look for in jobs or retirements or houses or family he's not talking about that kind of peace what kind of peace is he talking about in this passage he comes to them and his first words that he says to them are peace be with you peace be with you and here he is standing among them, which means he's riven, risen from the grave. He has conquered death. Peace be with you. He's talking about the restored relationship that we now as believers have with the Father. He's telling the disciples that the anguish, the disconnectedness, the chasm that's existed between us and the Father since the first sin in the garden. He's saying, that's all gone. May your souls rest in peace. You have peace. You're connected again by me, through me, to the Father. He's now ushered in by his life, death, and resurrection. Reconciliation. And that sets our souls at peace, those who would repent and believe and follow. John writes this phrase twice right here in verses 19 and 21. 
He then says it again a little later in the, in the chapter when he's talking to Thomas. John writes it three times over the course of a couple of verses. That's important. We need to take note of that. John is wanting us to understand. He's wanting us to see. He's wanting us to believe that Christ's resurrection, because of Christ's resurrection, we can now be made right again with the Father. John is driving that point home. It is finished. I have overcome the world, Jesus says. Peace be with you. Verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. I love this. I love this verse. Christ gives us the very purpose in this verse for why we have been saved. Do you see it? Can you see it right there in front of you? Can you see what John is saying by and through the Holy Spirit? As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you to go. To go. We have been saved to go. Like he said to Mary, go and tell my disciples. He tells his disciples his plan for them now that he has secured peace is for them to go. As the Father has sent him, he is now sending them. We shouldn't necessarily look at this as a commandment. I mean, it, he says to go, that's for sure. But this is inferred. This is like, this is, he's saying this. This is a picture to us. This is a picture of the Father's plan to save sinners. As God sent the Son, the Son is sending those who repent and believe to go and make disciples. This is a picture of the Father's plan to redeem a lost and dying people that will worship him forever. We see this in picture in the book of Revelation where every tribe, tongue, and people group are gathered around the throne worshiping the Father and the Lamb. That picture is not about those people that are worshiping. That picture is not about those people. That picture is about the Father and the Lamb, what He did, what He accomplished to the glory of the Father and the praise of the Lamb. It's important that we see and know that salvation to us from Christ was not primarily about you or me. It's primarily about the Father and the Lamb. It's about the grace and love of the Father to save sinners. The chief end of man is God. The chief end of God is God, Colossians 1 tells us. The primary significance of our salvation is that it points to a grace-filled God, Ephesians 1, Ezekiel 36. The primary reason for our sanctification is because we are sent out to a world to tell of this grace-filled God, John 17 says. Our obedience is primarily for God. It's not primarily for us, nor is it primarily for others. It's for him. We make disciples primarily for the glory of God, not primarily for the saving of sinners salvation is not about us it's about the glory of god it's about the father's will salvation doesn't stop with us 
it ends in the throne room of the Father. This is why Christ tells Mary, don't just stay and cling to me. Go and tell. When we disconnect salvation from going and telling, we have missed the point entirely. We are saved to go and proclaim. Look again at this passage. Christ says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. That is all one breath. He doesn't separate the two. You are saved, Christian, for one purpose, to proclaim the gospel, and in doing so, to glorify the Father and worship the Lamb. I think we like to make it about us most often. We like to live in the moment of our salvation. We like to, we like to think about being saved from eternal torment and eternal hell and separation from God. We like to think about that. And we like to think about the blessings that come with following God and, and receiving Christ and the blessings that will come. And, and for sure those things are true. There, there are truths in the words to speak of those things. But those aren't the primary truths of our salvation. This whole thing from Genesis to Revelation is about him and his plan to that end picture we see in Revelation. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen romans eleven thirty six. this is what christ has conveyed to his disciples in this passage this isn't about a command this is this is about why we are reborn for the purpose to go and tell verses 21 and 22 jesus said to them again peace be with you as the father has sent me even so i am sending you and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So then we see right here in this passage, in the same breath, he not only gives us the purpose, the purpose being to go and tell, but in that same breath, he gives us the power by which we will go and tell. We have peace. Us and the Father, because of Christ, bridging that gap. And now we have a purpose. And now we have power. The Holy Spirit. The very means by which God will ensure that his redemptive plan to save sinners will be achieved. The Holy Spirit. Christ knows. God knows. So do we. If left up to us, we screw this up right out of the gate. We proved that in the garden. We know we have no ability in and of ourselves to pursue the Father's will. We can't obey perfectly. We can't follow perfectly. We can't fulfill the plan to go and proclaim perfectly. Without the Spirit, we wouldn't do any of those things. We need a helper. We need the very Spirit of God in us to accomplish His plan and His will. And he ensures that we can and we will by giving us the Holy Spirit of God. John 14, 25 tells us that when Christ ascends, just like he had told Mary, I'm going to ascend to my Father, the Father will send a helper, the Holy Spirit of God himself, who will dwell in us and teach us all things and bring to our remembrance all things that Christ has taught. That promise is then fulfilled in Acts 2, at the day of Pentecost, we see that in Acts 2, Holy Spirit of God descends upon his followers. 
This is what God is talking about in Jeremiah 31 when he says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their heart. That's figurative language for the work of the Holy Spirit post-resurrection. Spirit-filled people pursue the plan of God. Not because we can or because it's a command but because it's who we are now in Christ. Because we've been born again, that new birth gives us a new heart, a new nature given by and controlled by the Holy Spirit of God in us. It's the Holy Spirit of God that allows us, causes us, if you will, to both embody, to live as believers and to live as followers by proclaiming. It's the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. This is what Christ is saying. Go and proclaim and receive the Spirit all in the same passage. Acts 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will have the power to proclaim and you will proclaim. not a command that is optional to be a witness is a direct outflow of the filling of the holy spirit romans 8 verse 9 says you are not even saved if you don't have the spirit of god in you acts 1 here lists them together you will have the spirit and be a witness We can't separate the purposes we are saved for and the work of the Spirit in us to bring that about. We are saved to proclaim, and it's by the Spirit that we will do it. Brother, sister, don't quench the Spirit of God in you. Ephesians 5 says, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled, go, proclaim the gospel. It's why we were saved. Finally, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The language of this passage can be pretty difficult to understand and maybe even interpret. Many, many people in other um, realms of of religion have have taken this passage and, and, and meant it to say or read it to say, have taught it to say that we as followers have the authority to grant or withhold forgiveness of sins. And that's not what this passage is saying. This passage is simply calling us to proclaim the gospel with the assurance that those who believe will be forgiven and those who don't believe will not. We don't have the power or the authority, personally, me, I don't, to forgive or withhold forgiveness. But we do have the power of the Holy Spirit of God inside of us to go and proclaim. It's interesting that these words, they are forgiven and it is withheld. In the Greek, they're actually considered 
perfect tense, which, which means, if, if it's read in the Greek, it means they have been forgiven and it has been withheld. This is language that's suggesting it's already been decided. And similar to verse 29, if you look down where it says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In verse 29, no one else had seen Christ. And yet it says, blessed are they who have already believed. These passages are encouraging to us as believers because we are sent to proclaim with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we can do that with the assurance that it is not up to us or by us that people will believe. We can go with the assurance that our job is to proclaim. Our purpose is to proclaim. It's the purpose of God and the role of the Holy Spirit to save. And this is good news to us. This is helpful to us. This takes away all of the weight, all of the fear. It takes away all of the hesitation to open up our mouths. It takes all of the burden away. It takes the burden away, feeling like we have to go out and convert people. It takes all of that away from us. This passage is saying, as his disciples, we go and tell, and he will do the rest. We have nothing to work towards in our going and telling. We have, we have no results to achieve in our going and telling. We don't. We are simply called to go and proclaim. We get to go and tell about our life, about our joy, found in Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our going and proclaiming has already been prepared beforehand. We have but to just go and walk in it. No wait, no worry, no fear. There's no reason to shrink back. We have simply to go and proclaim and walk in what he has already laid out before us. By Christ, according to the purposes of God for his glory. And he is worthy of that glory. So I'll end with a couple questions and the worship team, feel free to make your way on out. Have you heard Christ call you by name like we see him call Mary in this chapter? Have you heard that call? Are you hearing him today? Are you having a light dawn inside of you where you can maybe see him and hear him and he's calling you? you turned as he's called or are you still stooping looking into the empty tomb that which holds no life have you turned or are you stooping
Are you resting in the peace that Christ accomplished for you on the cross? Or are you still tirelessly working towards your own righteousness? Are you resting in his peace? Or are you working towards your own righteousness? Are you living in the power of the Holy Spirit that Christ has breathed into you? Are you living in the power of the Holy Spirit? Or are you living day by day dependent upon your own strength and ability? Are you walking in the purpose of your salvation, Christian? To proclaim the gospel. Are you walking in that? Or are you keeping the good news of Christ to yourself? Are you proclaiming? Or are you keeping? The elders asked me to share today a little about why we're going to Madrid. To proclaim the gospel. What that looks like, how that's going to roll, I have no idea. But I know the resurrection of Christ has changed our lives. And he has said, go and proclaim. And he is sending, he has orchestrated this move to Madras. I think there's a, a lot of reasons why we would go. But I think the main reason, the primary reason, is found here in John 20. It's because of the resurrection from death unto life of Jesus Christ. And there are people in Madras that desperately need to hear this. And, and I believe there are people here in Prineville and up Juniper Canyon and in Post and Polina and Mitchell that desperately need to hear this message. So I'll end with where I began and I'll ask you today, what impact is Christ's resurrection having upon you today? Brother, sister, are you going and telling? Or are you keeping? Are you stooping? He's not there. He's alive. And that's good news. Go. Go.